0: Good morning. Wow, what a glorious day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. So this last September, we commemorated the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks and a few months into the so-called War on Terror in early 2002 the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, gave a news briefing. Some of you might remember this briefing. He was addressing the potential link between the government of Iraq and the supply of weapons of mass destruction to terrorists. And this is what he said in that briefing. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we know. Oh, I'm sorry, the ones we don't know we don't know. Clear as mud, right? (laughs) Uh, Now, Rumso was basing these comments on the insights of national security and intelligence experts. And this concept of unknown unknowns was something that had been used by NASA in previous years. But there were there were many well-educated journalists in in the room that day who were very confused by these comments. Um, Today is Halloween, of course, a day when many people embrace the terrifying horror movies are the order of the day or of the season. I was watching the World Series last night. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was multitasking. And there was a commercial for Tubi, uh, an ad supported streaming service. And the commercial went terror on Tubi screaming this October. But one of the things that has most terrified the human race is what Rumsfeld was trying to describe in that press conference, the unknown. And this can take on many forms. Many of us have had the experience of waiting to hear back after a job interview, right? The interviewer may have been hard to read. Uh, Maybe he or she didn't seem very enthusiastic. At the same time, this person didn't seem uninterested either. And so you wait, and a number of days go by. And after a while, you just want to know the outcome, even if it's unfavorable, because the uncertainty can create discomfort, even... Acute discomfort. And this is only one example of the kind of uncertainty that we face on a regular basis. Uh, Recently, we've all faced the uncertainty that has come with COVID-19. Uncertainty is part and parcel of human existence. And for some people, the um, inability to sort of process ambiguous situations can fuel chronic anxiety disorders. Tomorrow is the 1st of November, and we are nearing the terminus, the end of the church year. Next Sunday we'll commemorate All Saints Day. Three weeks from today is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year. And Advent begins in four weeks. We have walked in this church year through the primary events in the life of Christ, which culminate in his resurrection on Easter Sunday. We have celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. We have considered since then the role of the church, our mission to abide in Christ, to love one another, and to be good stewards of God's truth, taking the good news out into the world. And yet, as God's people, we often experience dissonance in our lives. We claim that Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, But as Hebrews 2.8 says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We continue to wait for his return. And so, because our salvation is not yet complete, there is a temptation to turn to other sources of security and wholeness. This was a temptation that the believers in Hebrews faced, and it's one that we face in equal measure today. So, in recent weeks, we've been going through the letter to the Hebrews, and though it's an honored book in the New Testament, in many ways, it's the most mysterious book. Some have described it as the riddle of the New Testament. It lacks the conventions of other ancient letters. Neither the author or the intended audience is specified. There's no clear occasion for the letter. And in this way, it's unlike any of the other epistles that we have in the New Testament. And in this somewhat mysterious letter, no statement perhaps is more mysterious than the one repeated in these middle chapters that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is a riddle within the riddle, so to speak. Besides uh, Psalm 110, Melchizedek is only mentioned in Genesis 14, our Old Testament passage for this morning. He's a rather obscure figure. And one of the more dusty passages of the Old Testament. And yet, the author of Hebrews is keenly interested in him and his connections to Christ. So who is this Melchizedek? The narrative of Genesis 14 is summed up at the beginning of chapter 7 in Hebrews. Melchizedek is the king of Salem and a priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham when Abraham returned from saving Lot, his nephew, from the kings who had captured him. Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and then Abraham gives him one-tenth of the spoils. One of the first things the writer of Hebrews muses on is the the name Melchizedek and what it means. And we must remember that in in the Bible, names had great significance. Um, And in many of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, the name Melchizedek is written as two words, Really, two words, Melek, which means king, and Zedek, Zedek, which means righteousness or justice. So as a writer of the Hebrews points out, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And this title reflects the ancient concept of kingship, that the king was to preserve justice at all costs. But he's not just the king of righteousness. He's also the king of Salem. That is Jerusalem. He is the king of Shalom, of peace. Melchizedek is the king of peace. So, put together, he's the king of righteousness, justice, and peace. And these are characteristics of the new age that's described by all the major prophets in the Old Testament Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They all look forward to this day. And, of course, righteousness, justice, and peace are all characteristics of the Messiah. So let's talk a little bit about the unique priesthood of Melchizedek. Um, Adding to sort of this mysteriousness that surrounds him, the, the writer of Hebrews describes him in an intriguing way. He says, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This passage has generated a lot of discussion. Is the writer saying that Melchizedek didn't have parents? That he wasn't born? that he didn't die N. T. Wright thinks that this is unlikely and if he said it it must be true right instead the emphasis here seems to be on the origins of Melchizedek's priesthood or the lack of origins remember the striking claim of Psalm 110 there's a king who's being crowned but there's also a priest how does that work We remember that Solomon offered sacrifices in the new temple when it was being dedicated, but no other kings did this. Why? Because there was a clear division of labor. Aaronites from the tribe of Levi were priests, and Davidites from the tribe of Judah were kings. So the question that sort of hangs over Psalm 110 is how could a king also be a priest? Now, Melchizedek is introduced in the Abraham story as a priest of the Most High God. But there's no mention here of where he got his priesthood from. Did he inherit it? Through father or mother? When did his priesthood begin? So in the story, it's as if he's a permanent fixture. He just shows up, does his priestly work, blesses Abraham, receives a tithe, and then disappears until Psalm 110. And the statement that he is without parentage or genealogy prepares us for the primary point of this whole chapter in Hebrews, that Jesus' high priesthood does not depend upon parentage or upon birth into a priestly family. Instead, his priesthood, unlike the Aaronic priesthood, continues uninterrupted into the present. Now, as the writer of Hebrews admits in chapter 5, verse 11, the connection between Christ and Melchizedek is hard to explain. And I could go into more detail here. And in colonial New England, Puritan sermons were often two hours, sometimes three hours long. I could go into more detail. We're not going to do that this morning. Don't worry. So let me try to sum up the primary arguments of Hebrews 7. The messianic priesthood of Psalm 110, the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, is vastly superior to the Levitical priesthood. And it's better for the following reasons. Number one, the high priest is immortal. Christ is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We see in verse 23 that Levitical priests were unable to continue in office because they died. But Christ is not a priest through bodily descent, but as we see on the cover of the worship guide, he's priest by power of an indestructible life. In verse 24, it says that Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The priesthood of Psalm 110 is also superior because the high priest is sinless the Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for others, but on the Day of Atonement, they also offered a sacrifice for themselves because they were sinful. Christ, on the other hand, as we see in verse 26, is holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. We also see in Hebrews 7 that the, the sacrifice of this high priest is superior because it is once for all. It's a one-time sacrifice. The Levitical priests offered countless animal sacrifices. Just imagine the stench of the temple during a feast like Passover. In comparison, that plant in Dayton, the Cargill plant, would have smelled like roses. In some ways, the priests were like glorified butchers. It was a messy, bloody business to offer animal sacrifices. Our high priest, on the other hand, Christ, offered one sacrifice, once for all time. And finally, and for me, this is the humdinger, the priesthood of Psalm 110 is superior because the high priest offered up himself. The high priest offered up himself. No Levitical priest would have dreamed of doing such a thing. And even if they had done, their sacrifice wouldn't have been accepted. Why? Because they were sinful. They were not pure and spotless. But Jesus offered up himself. So in Christ, the high priest and the sacrifice are one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world does so as mediator and offering. Now, the point of all this discussion in Hebrews is not theoretical or speculative. The writer of Hebrews does draw on the rich uh, tradition of Jewish theology and Greek philosophy. And to be sure, the argument here in Hebrews 7 is intricate and complex. But the pri- the, the primary concern of the author is not academic, it's practical. Inspired by the Spirit, he's trying to provide a theological answer to a pastoral problem. And what is his specific aim? He's trying to shore up the faith of fellow believers who are suffering and who are struggling. They're weary, their faith is wavering, and he can see it. They've experienced the trauma of persecution. We see that at the end of chapter 10. This included imprisonment, public abuse, and confiscation of property. And given their realities, there's a palpable fear here in Hebrews that they might fall away. They might be like the wilderness generation who failed to hear and heed the voice of God. And so the writer of Hebrews draws their attention to the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He points out the excellencies of Jesus as high priest so they can find assurance and hope in him and him alone. Now, this language about priests and sacrifices might seem far removed from our own experience. But despite all our uh, technological prowess, our age is as uncertain as any other age in human history. And this uncertainty comes from this, this sort of primal human fear of the unknown. The recognition that there are many forces that are greater than ourselves. These include decay, disease, disasters, whether natural or human cause, death. And we seek to negotiate with these powers. Not so much to appease them perhaps, but to try to keep them at bay. And in the face of this uncertainty people seek ways to provide a measure of security in their lives. One of these is insurance. You watch any sporting event, a football game, a baseball game, and try to count how many insurance commercials there are. Insurance is one way to try to allay our discomfort with uncertainty. So though the idea of a high priesthood may be remote for us, the temptation to turn to alternative mediators and alternative priesthoods is not particular to the first century. It's very much a problem for us today, too, isn't it? Some turn to alternative religion or religions. Uh, New Age is essentially a smorgasbord of all kinds of Eastern religions and non-Western ideas. Uh, I had a student once who told me that she didn't believe in one religion. She said that she liked to piece together all the good parts of all the religions, and she was very proud of sort of the faith that she had cobbled together. This is very typical of our age. Some people turn to alternative medicine. This approach is becoming more and more popular. Uh, Some blend traditional and alternative medicines and this is called integrative medicine. And there are many benefits that can come from this approach. I've never tried it and I never will. But acupuncture supposedly has been shown to be helpful with some ailments and disorders. But there are dangers with this approach as well. Some of these alternative medicines are rooted in unchristian, even anti-christian belief. Uh, For example, uh, Reiki uh, tries to, a Japanese Buddhist approach, tries to work with supernatural energies. The practitioner attempts to channel positive energy through massage into the body of the patient. Some of you might be familiar with the Christian singer uh, Audrey Assad. Uh, She became popular about 10 years ago and earlier this year in March she announced that she's no longer a practicing Christian and she revealed that she had a breakthrough moment a few years ago when she took a therapeutical dose of psychedelic mushrooms which are illegal in most places and on this trip Assad said that she experienced the divine love that undergirds this universe. And since then, she has moved away from Christian faith. Now, there are other alternative mediators and priesthoods that we could speak of, but you get the idea. The point isn't that all of these are ineffective or bad, necessarily. Some of them do help. Some of them do make a difference. The point is that we need the permanence that is only found in Christ, the perfect mediator between man and God, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, because he is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, represents a better way. And we see that in verse 19 of our passage, that the priesthood of Christ is a better hope through which we can draw near to God. Christ is better in every respect, Because he alone can open the way to God, fully and truly. And an interesting study is to look at this term that's translated better in the book of Hebrews. Um, We see uh, this gives us a lot of insight into the mind, uh, the frame of mind of the writer. And throughout the letter he compares and contrasts different things. He talks about a better hope in our passage. A better covenant. In chapter 8, a better promise, a better sacrifice in chapter 9, a better possession in chapter 10, a better country in chapter 11, a better life in chapter 11, and a better word in chapter 12. But again, he's not necessarily comparing something bad with something good. The, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was instituted by God himself at Sinai. Instead, the writer of Hebrews is contrasting something good with something much better. And in the end there are two priesthoods. The priesthood of Levi of Aaron, which is described as weak, transitory, imperfect and mortal, and the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is fully effective, permanent, perfect and immortal. And with the coming of Christ and the work he completed on the cross, God has accomplished the work of redemption, the perfection that the author of Hebrews speaks of. Before Christ, this had been an impossible dream. But in his resurrection, Jesus demonstrates his indestructible life. And consequently, take a look if you have a Bible at Hebrews 7.25. This is an amazing verse. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The Greek word translated uttermost here can also mean completely, entirely, perfectly throughout all time. So for the author of Hebrews, the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, does not only belong to the past and to the future, but also to the present. He always lives to make intercession for you and me. And therefore, as those who trust him and put our confidence in him, we can be assured this priest will not fail. Our hope is certain and rock solid in Christ. One of the most memorable images of that certainty in Hebrews and really in the whole Bible is found in the previous chapter, at the end of chapter 6, verse 19, which speaks of the Christian hope as a stable and firm anchor of the soul. The Christian faith as an anchor of the soul. Seafaring was common in the Roman Empire because of the Mediterranean Sea. That was sort of the geographical feature that defined the empire. The empire was organized around the Mediterranean. The Romans often referred to the Mediterranean as Mare Nostrum, our sea, our lake. And though it is a sea and not an ocean, it is treacherous to this day. At the end of Acts, we read about the shipwreck that Paul experienced while being transported to Rome. And so, to sort of counteract the treachery of the sea, the Romans designed iron anchors with flukes, with hooks. They sort of resembled an upside-down pickaxe. And when these anchors hit the seabed and the ship moved, the flukes would embed themselves into the sea floor and hold the unstable ship fast. And the anchor functions then like a lifeline to the stability of land. We see a motif of journey in Hebrews, but the Christian life is not just an overland journey, it's also like a sea voyage. And in our Anglican baptism liturgy, The church is compared to Noah's ark. And like Noah's family, the people of God have to pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome, uncertain world with Christ as the anchor of hope. The anchor is one of the earliest Christian symbols, uh, along with the fish. It's found on grave markers going back as far as the second century. It's also... Symbol for our diocese, the diocese of Christ our hope, with an anchor. And uh, as a curate and ordinan, I'm a company man, and so I'm sipping my sermon water from company merchandise this morning. Christ, our anchor and hope. In the face of uncertainty, there are two competing ways to anchor human existence. One is transient, temporary, and permanent. The other is certain permanent eternal we don't know what the future holds but we do know who holds the future you ask who that may be christ jesus it is he he is seated in the heavenly realm at the right hand of the throne of god and he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me amen let me finish by repeating the collect for today. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, as we live among things that are passing away, as we live amongst the uncertain, help us to hold fast to those things that shall endure Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.